Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 282nd episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Allison Felix. Allison is a managing partner and COO for Cassidy & Company, a hybrid advisory firm based in McLean, Virginia, that oversees more than $4 billion in assets for nearly 2,500 client households. What's unique about Allison, though, is how she built and then leveraged her extensive knowledge of her firm and its operations to make the journey from executive assistant all the way to being the COO, helping the firm scale to 3x its size over the past decade alone, from 25 employees to 75, and on its path to over $4 billion in AUM. In this episode, we talk in depth about how losing a key player in the firm's succession plan led to a restructuring and Allison being chosen as the firm's first COO. How Cassidy and Company developed its unique compensation structure that combines a very low base salary with a percentage of the firm's top-line revenue for every employee to motivate all of them to reinvest in the success of the firm. And how Allison's firm has propelled its growth with almost weekly seminars that were honed by hiring coaches to give constructive criticism and even recording the seminars to have all team members give critical feedback for improvement. We also talk about how Allison applies the knowledge she gained through her years as an executive assistant, where she was not only responsible for bringing the CEO coffee, but more importantly, learned to wear multiple hats from HR and billings to operations to better herself as a COO. Why Allison's firm has been expanding its service offerings to include estate planning, tax planning, and a life coach to create a higher touch service for clients. And why and how last year, Cassie and Company ultimately decided to partner with Focus Financial to facilitate their firm's succession plan after the firm became too big for internal successors to buy it out, while still allowing all the key team members to continue in their current roles serving clients. And be certain to listen to the end, where Allison shares how, even though she has worked hard to scale and grow the firm, she's still surprised at the rapid growth despite challenges in recent years due to COVID. Why Allison believes it's important for future generations, especially young women, to understand the wealth of opportunities in financial planning, as there's more to the industry than just talking numbers with clients. And why Allison feels stepping into the role of COO was pivotal, not only for helping to reinforce the confidence she had in herself, but to create representation for women at her firm and in the broader financial services industry. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Allison Felix. Welcome, Allison Felix, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks. I'm so happy to be here. I really appreciate you joining us. I'm, I'm looking forward to the discussion today around, to me, just what are some of the really interesting, unique challenges that come when advisory firms grow to a certain size where you're just like the, the, the founder can't do everything and run everything and manage everything. And, and you have to start down that path that at least the, the, the industry consultants call hiring dedicated management, right? The, this separation where just you, the, the firm starts hiring people whose sole job is to manage other people, which you don't really have in a business until you get to a certain size where that just right. that becomes necessary. You have to get there. And I, I know you've lived a version of that journey yourself, both you know, wearing that CEO, uh, COO and managing partner hat in a, in a large advisory firm. And what I know is actually a really cool uh, sort of 20-year career journey from executive assistant to leading the firm. Uh, 
but just you know that that journey of what it looks like both from the personal career end and just as a firm when you grow to the point of you know what i think we just need someone whose sole job is just to manage all the people and stuff that's happening because there's just a lot of stuff happening in the firm when it gets to a certain size sure so for for us um you know and i know that every firm is different as you as you mentioned we were probably about 15 years old as a firm before we started considering the idea of a coo role and what was um, maybe unique to us, but not certainly unique in the industry, is that our CEO was also an advisor. And so when you're looking at the combination of managing a firm and uh, maintaining a book of client relationships, there comes a tipping point. And so for us, um, it was about, like I said, 15 years when we started talking about it, close to 18 by the time I sort of sort of officially took the title um, because my CEO at the time had approached me and said, you know, I think that you should go back to school, get your MBA. We're looking at the growth of the firm, what this would look like. I think you'd be great positioned in this role. And and it was the first uh, chief operating officer role for the firm. So not only was I super flattered that um, he thought, you know, that much of me to come in and have that um, you know, influence and, and sort of leadership level. Um, but, you know, certainly as a, as a firm looking at our strategic path and our vision, we decided that it was absolutely necessary to walk down a path where we were separating the CEO and COO roles, as well as uh, continuing to navigate our succession plan. Um, because in addition to being CEO, the uh the advisor uh, was also the primary rainmaker and sole owner uh, for quite some time. So for us, it was, yeah, walking down sort of multiple paths to figure out, you know, who else do we need here in the C-suite? So you noted that this was 15 plus years into the firm when it, it got to the point of saying, hey, we maybe to do this. So, so can you size the firm for us? What was the actual size of the firm when it was getting to this realization of, oh, I think we're going to have to do something here? So we started talking about it in, a, in 2008. And so I ended up going and entering into a, an executive level MBA program in 09, well, which led to the graduation uh, of that program in 2011. So that was sort of the launching point of having a COO at the firm, but we were talking about it, you know, three three plus years earlier. And so I would say we were probably at the 20 to 25 employee headcount mark by that point. Today, we're at uh, almost 75 employees. So <clears throat> we've definitely had um, an expansive, you know, number, <laughs> uh, you know, of headcount growth uh, during that time. But we were in a healthy state of growth. Um, uh, you know, I think at some point we'll, we'll end up talking a little bit about uh, some challenges maybe that we've experienced over our path. But one of those was the loss of a senior advisor at the firm at that time. And so we had a lot of course correction. Um, but like I said, we were probably about 20 to 25 uh, employees at that point. Okay. So what were the challenges that I guess you were hitting or feeling at the time as you're at 20 to 25 employees that was leading to this, hey, I think I think we need to change the structure. I think we need this COO role. So I think it was two things. And I, and I think I would only use the word challenge for one of them. And so okay. the, the challenge was the growth that was happening at the time. Our model had been and always has been to bring on young uh 
influential, uh, you know, students right out of college, you know, fresh and new and don't have bad habits and really excited to learn. And so we had brought in these advisors, young advisors in training and mentored them. And they were all launching into, um, you know, gaining their own clients, you know, uh, marketing and building client relationships. And so we were, we felt like we were a well-oiled machine in some ways um, in terms of, you know, bringing uh, clients into the firm. The challenge there then becomes, well, what do you, what's the, what's the attention, uh, you know, that you need to both of those concepts? Do you need to spend time on the, the client needs? Do you need to spend time on the firm needs? How do you balance the two of those? And so from an operational standpoint, I would say that the growth was the, um, you know, launching point and, and maybe maybe quick growth, right? We were, um, if you can call quick growth a challenge, um, but, you know, grow, everybody understands growing pains and the fact yep. that sometimes your growth exceeds your ability to keep up with it. And so at that time, that's kind of where we were. As I mentioned, we lost uh, a key member of our firm who had had two employees with him. And so when he left to uh, start his own practice, it, um, it it shook the organization a bit. You know, it was how how do we come back from this? How do we look at this as a opportunity to rise up together and continue to make this a really great firm, but more cohesive than we've ever been before? And so we spent a lot of time having uh, corporate retreats. We had put together a firm leadership uh, team before that, and we really just came together as a group to make sure that the firm was going to stay strong despite this uh, disruption. Because at that point, we'd never had such a key advisor, um, you know, leave the firm. So what was the reaction going on with the with the firm? I was trying to understand, was this, a, we lost a key person and a bunch of clients and revenue. And so suddenly, like, our economics are out of whack. We have to, like, right-size team and restructure. Or was this more from the direction of, like, oh, we lost someone with a lot of clients and revenue. Like, that hurt. How do we make it to the point where we don't lose people in the future? And, like, we're, you know, it's not about how do we restructure for the person that we lost. It's sure. the, how do we restructure so that hopefully we have better retention and that doesn't happen again. Yeah, like we're, so I think which version like, of it was going yeah, on? Yeah, it was, it, and I think it was kind of a blend of both, but I would say okay. initially it was, how do we how do we look to restructure and keep pushing forward? So if you, um, going back to me talking about the time frame, this all happened uh, late 2008, early 2009. Okay. Uh, I think we all understand what was happening in the market at that time. Yeah, not, <laughs> so, not, the, not, not the best I, time to have like the, key team I, turnover. Yes, right. Not the ideal te- time to have a, a significant advisor with a large practice, book of business, with a couple staff people sort of up uplift and, and go out and start their own uh, business. And so um, what are the one of the things that has always made our firm really uh, strong is that the CEO, when he was founding the firm, decided, you know, he wanted everyone in the firm to think entrepreneurially. And so we've always paid our employees from reception all the way up to the CEO the same way. We make sure that everyone is paid on top line revenue. And so we could come back to that. But frankly, that really put everybody in an investment position. So when you have a top advisor who's, you know, bringing revenue with him and not leaving it here, that impacts everybody's paycheck, right? That's not a a chief uh, level, you know, problem. That is an, that is a firm 
system-wide level challenge. And so we got creative about restructuring positions and uh, compensation and even how we were helping young uh, staff with not high-level high salaries sort of make it through. Um, and so it, it became a little bit of a rallying cry where we said, we're not going to let this bring us down. At the same time, we are going to look at, you know, what, how do we prevent that in the future? And so I think you're always interested as a, as a business um, leader or, or owner, um, at, you know, how do you uh, attract and retain really excellent talent? And that is something that's been at the forefront uh, of, you know, everything that we do outside of um, bringing, you know, high level service to our clients. And so uh, that was a great opportunity for us to kind of get to pull ourselves up by the, by our bootstraps. I mentioned that we were really um, feeling good about the business we were bringing in at that time. And so we had decided, okay, a chief operating officer role makes sense. Oh, by the way, uh, somebody's going to leave the practice. We're going to have to re uh, restructure some positions at the firm, figure out what support looks like, how the investment in staff uh, should, uh, you know, shuffle a little bit to make sure that none of these people also leave as a result of this, um, you know, top advisor leaving. So I, I am curious to uh, hear more of this, like, re like top line revenue based compensation across the firm. So how, how does this structure work for team compensation? So we're a hybrid. We've, uh, you know, got some commission business, but we are largely fee based. And so what we have always promoted to employees who are coming into the firm is that we will pay them a, a combination of base salary and uh, basis points on top line revenue of the firm. And so for most people, the base salary was so insignificant that the revenue made up the largest share uh, of their income. And so they were motivated to ensure that everything about their job was done well and the clients were kept happy so that uh, the firm, you know, w was continued to grow. We ensured that people were only focusing on their highest payoff, payoff activities. You know, I think that the whole reason for someone like a chief operating officer is that if you've got a CEO who's also an advisor, you want them doing nothing other than talking to clients right. and asking people, can I invest this money for you? And so that's, that is entirely the model that we have structured with shared uh, team support. So, that our advisors are doing nothing but talking to clients um, and have continued to develop different um, support service teams within the organization um, to continue to allow them to do those things. And so when you've got everybody being paid the same way, you know, everyone knows where their bread is buttered. They're yep. all rowing the boat in the same direction. Uh, all the sort of cliche things that could be said, but are actually true. Um, and so, you know, we were willing to, to say, okay, what do we need to do to make up for the loss uh, of an of another advisor and and part of a chief operating role is ensuring that your staff understands you know where are we headed um, how do you play a role in that and you know how can I be here to be your both your um, chief cheerleader uh, but also you know hold you accountable to meeting uh, the goals that you set for yourself and and how they support the firm's goals.
So how do you understand a little bit more just this? I'm so just fascinated with this compensation structure. So I guess it is even of a rough breakdown, like how much is base, how much tends to be base salary and how much tends to be the, the sort of like revenue based compensation? I mean, just is sure. this like 75% salary, 25% uh, uh, variable, or is this more like 25% salary and 75% variable? Like how does the breakdown work? Prior to 2021, any employee that was hired and I'll, you know, give a for instance, but you know, generally base salaries in our office were slightly under 20 grand. Now, okay. if you're anyone, whether you're coming out of college or you're coming off of another role at some other firm, there's no way you're going to live on 20 grand in right. the, you know, Vir- Virginia, DC, uh, you know, area. Yes. Greater, yes, greater DC metropolitan area is obnoxiously expensive. (laughs) Ridiculously expensive. And so, and that was all uh, pre-current state of things. And so, you know, we had to be really um, transparent about how the business has been growing and succeeding in order to, um, you know, ethically communicate to our uh, candidates that this way of being paid actually comes out to be a benefit to them. So for instance, um, if you are a new hire in 2002 and you come on and your salary is 20 grand, but your basis points on revenue generated, you know, a 30 grand salary, okay, for a total of approximately 50 grand. As the firm grew and the revenue grew, so too did you your, did your you know revenue share? I mean, you might right. have had the same you know basis points, but uh, frankly, with the growth of the firm came growth in your comp. So we've had employees who've been at the firm 15, 20, 25, 30 years. So if right. you, like myself, who's been here over 20 years, started out at a percent of revenue. And the firm has grown exponentially. I mean, we're right. talking from, you know, a couple hundred million to now we're just over four, you know, plus billion. Um, obviously, you're going to have impact, <laughs> you yeah. know, there from a revenue perspective. And so, you know, the the transparency in our growth and our numbers is really what gets employees excited about this process and the fact that there are so many tenured people that we can say we are living it and we would never have stayed with a firm if this process didn't work. Um, Now, there's all sorts of sort of caveats and ins and outs and how that worked over time. Um, You know, at some point, you come to a level where you say, well, I can't give everybody 1% of the revenue, right? I mean, even if you're not- At some point, the percentage is have to be fairly small percentages because sure. the denominator just yes. gets so big when you're yes, a yes. billion or multiple billions of dollars. Sure, sure. And so as someone who was partnering with us, they asked a lot of questions about that process. And so what we did in um, the beginning of 22 is that we normalized that comp to a more 50-50 split. So based on whatever your earnings were in 21 as a, you know, a, an existing current employee who is earning revenue share, because um, what I didn't mention is that we often have people come in for about 60 to 90 days at a flat base salary before we transition them to that revenue share plan. Um, because we're largely fee-based, and uh, as many of your listeners know, revenue comes in quarterly. And so the bulk of your 
uh, income as an employee at our firm, you know, is is uh, received quarterly, and thus you have a, a key budgeting uh, component mm. to your lifestyle and understanding sort of how all that uh, works. So, so give we give staff uh, coming on to the firm a sixty to ninety day window to get acclimated, and then time it properly with um, what oh. we would call sort of a, a fee payroll, if you will. Interesting. So. so not so not only is it is there this heavy revenue based compensation. Uh, uh, component, but they're actually on the quarterly billing cycle. So like yes. more than half your paycheck might get paid in three month lumps every three months because, yes. hey, yep. that's how our business works. So yes. you know, yes. you're, you're going to be aligned to this as well. Yeah. So the key is that you have to um, really work with new hires initially up front and, and make sure that they're comfortable with this. Once they've been through mm-hmm. two, three, four quarters, they're pretty set. They understand what's happening. Uh, but initially, this is very different than how other people are paying. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, we get a lot of questions. Well, is it a year-end bonus? No, it's not. It's paid throughout the quarters. You know, mm. if you have an up quarter, great. If you have a down quarter, we all take the hit. You know, I don't have to lay you off because of financial, uh, you know, uh, circumstances. Right. Well, it's just, it's a little bit off of my paycheck. It's a little bit off of yours and, yep. and sort of shared around the firm. And so, to be honest, that's how we sort of got through 2008. If you lost right. a primary revenue generating advisor at your firm, you'd have to give some really hard looks at, well, who did we hire recently? Where can we make right. some cuts? What do we need to look at? And we have never laid anyone off for economic reasons. Right. So but for better or worse, like, you know, you're, you're getting paid as a percentage of revenue. If I, I don't know what the size of the advisor was, but, you know, if, if a key advisor with 20 or 30% of the revenue walks out the door, like, guess what? Your rev share just went down by 30%. Right. So, all right, what are we going to do to make it up? What are we going to do to grow it back? What are we going to do as a team to make sure that doesn't happen again? Because now everybody really wants everybody else to stay and retain. Right. Uh, and which again, I couple, just like that's very yeah. good for cohesive culture, right? Like Thanks. every it's harder yeah. for someone to leave when you know all the coworkers you leave behind are going to have to take a personal income hit because you, you know you you bailed out of the wagon and sure. like sure. that's the point, right? Like that, yeah, that helps build build team cohesiveness. Sure, and like I said, coupled with the market conditions at that time, it became the rally cry to say we're going to do what it takes. And so no. we had very little turnover at that point um, at, during those years because everyone understood that we were all invested. Right. Um, and so you know, key or key earners, top earners at the firm, or you know, doing everything from uh, starting to uh, share in salary expense at the firm, um, or you know, as small as something like giving. Uh, gas gift cards to staff who may, you know, just just need those kind of boosts at a time like that, you know, when maybe their income was impacted. So, you know, markets over the last decade or so have really been helpful. Um, yeah. But your growth of assets, I, I mentioned, you know, when you go from um, at the time we were looking at, you know, how do we become a billion dollar firm? Um, before this this advisor had left, and now we're at uh, four billion, and we continue to look and say, well, how do we get past ten? You know, five or ten, um, and so always keeping smart goals as your forefront, uh, which I think is really the key to um, the the COO role uh, is making sure that the firm is driven by these um, benchmarks. We call it uh, vision driven progress. Um, you know, you set a plan for a number of years out and you don't know what's going to change. So how do you um, have a vision? You work towards that vision and you course correct um, along the way. So this this comp structure, 
like it's not as though someone joins the firm or you like you might get a low base salary and that's literally all you earn until you you go out and get clients and bring in revenue get comped as a percentage of revenue but sounds like that that's not the model here so like if i'm a if i'm an administrative staff that my compensation would normally be $50,000. I might still start at $50,000. It's just my $50,000 might be a base salary of 15 and a revenue share based on the current revenue of the firm that if we calculated it today would give me the other 35,000 of comp to get me to my 50 total. But it means 70% of my comp is going to be tied to that variable formula. So for better or worse, like I'm now living with the ups and downs of the firm and that's how you try to create the alignment. But I'm, right. I'm still getting, yes. I'm still getting paid like if i was going to get paid 50 i'm still going to get paid 50 out of the gate it's not like i started nothing and have to build up sure sure what it ensures is that everyone is nuts about client service if you are not uh somebody who is willing to walk by and pick up a ringing phone then you don't understand and so um you know we are sticklers about ensuring that clients are happy um, happy clients uh, produce stickiness plus referrals yeah. plus, you know, sort of all the other benefits, you know, when they have uh, rollovers to be made, uh, you know, during other periods of time, or maybe they didn't invest everything with you right off the gate. Um, you know, this is an opportunity for them to basically, you know, you're earning their trust. And so um, everyone from, like I said, the receptionist who's absolutely amazing with our clients, all the way up to our top advisors, understand what it takes. It's not, um, you know, oh, the advisors, you know, sort of approach the clients in one way and we as the support staff uh, approach it another way, which is not to say that everything is uh, a money motivator, right? You know, there are people who innately want to be um, good service people and we have a lot of those, Um, but I think it goes hand in hand. You know, you understand if you live in a high cost of living area, um, you know, you you need to make enough to live comfortably and still be able to uh, get your job done and in a happy and environment. So when team members are starting then, I guess it's it's not necessarily going to be a standard basis point rev share formula either. It, you're right. going to end out just over time, like team members come in, you know, we've benchmarked their starting comp to blank, 40 grand, 60 grand, 100 grand, 150 grand, like whatever it is for wherever they are in the organizational chart. Our base salaries are fairly limited, $20,000 or less. And so there, you like you have to go through the math exercise every time someone joins the firm to just set like, okay, I want their starting comp to be here. Our base right. salary is 20 or less. So, okay, based yeah. on our trailing revenue, like you're going to get uh, 200 basis points. You're going to get 100 basis points. You're going to get 72.5 basis yes. points. And, 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 like, and then every everybody's got their magic basis point number of what yes. what piece of revenue they get for their position. Yeah, it puts our HR team uh, on their toes, right? So, you know, they're constantly looking at what the last 12 months of revenue were so that we can say, okay, well, maybe somebody who was hired as a paraplanner, for instance, six years ago had 80 beeps. Well, today, you know, that could look like 60 beeps. Um, based on just where the revenue is. It doesn't mean that their starting salaries were necessarily different. Right. Um, but just the, the firm yeah. is bigger. So like starting pair, right, e- right. every pair of planner hired over the span of 10 years is going to get a different, probably smaller basis point formula over time because it just takes a smaller percentage of a bigger total revenue for the firm to get them to the starting salary that you want to get them to out of the gate. Yes. And so since I've been here, as long as I have, I know staff who you know had well over 100 basis points. 
And now we might have people who are under 20 or 25 basis points. And so what, like, what happens if someone gets a, a, like a promotion or like a change of role? I mean, I get when you come in out of the gate, here's where we want to get your comp, your base is this, so we can do the basis point math to figure out what your basis point, uh, your revenue participation would be. So like that sets you at a starting point. Sure. If at some point down the road, you know, I, mean, I got, I get, I started out as a paraplanner, but eventually I get promoted to be a support advisor and then a lead advisor and then a senior advisor. And like I've climbed the proverbial ladder. Like, do my, do my basis point thresholds get changed as I get promoted up the line as well? It's uh, definitely something where we look at, say, you know, what, what accomplishments have you had? This promotion's obviously deserving for a number of reasons. Let's look at where your comp should be. And uh, as I mentioned, we're sort of uh, broken up into two uh, timeframes, pre-2022, and then sort of what is today. And so pre-22, absolutely, uh, employees were getting basis point raises almost exclusively. We um, initially set it up so that we would not have high base salaries because then you have a high fixed cost. And so if you do have a market downturn, you know, you're still beholden to the fixed cost of the salary and thus have to make the decision that if something goes uh, awry that you would, you know, have to lay people off. And so for a long time, that was our model. So I guess I'm just worrying, like, do, do, do you worry about or did you have to deal with team members who just were there so long that their compensation ended up being rather large relative to the, the position? And like, I mean, I'm just, I think of your example, like an, an administrative person 20 years ago where 40 or $50,000 was like a really, like a really good income for, yeah, yeah. for an administrative position. And, you know, they're getting 20 of base and 30 and $30,000 on the rev share. And then over the past 20 years, like the firm 10 X, which means if I'm getting the same rev share, like I could, like, I could be an administrative staff member making like two or $300,000 because my 30 went to mm-hmm. two to 300 on the sheer amount of the growth. Like, yes. Did you have challenges like that that came up with this over really long-term team members? Absolutely. And so as an employee, great for you, right? Oh yeah, yeah, as a, yeah. Like, as a, uh, as a that'll, uh, that'll cut turnover down for yeah, a certain right? segment of the team. And so, uh, I, I'm pretty sure our receptionist just celebrated like her 10 year anniversary. So that that gives you, uh, you know, one of uh, mm-hmm. one example. But um, you, you know, what that ended up doing for leadership is taking a look at, you know, okay, so you have the opportunity as an administrative person to continue to make above average pay rates. But what we're going to do is ask you to also invest back into the organization. When your organization grows, we all understand that capacity becomes a a constraint. And you have to start looking at, well, who are we going to hire and who's going to pay for that? And so as um, team leads and directors of the firm started to get into those positions where they were so tenured and were earning so many times a above their peers elsewhere, um, it became a discussion around how do we keep this going? And if the alter- if the options are, well, we cap your salary, maybe you get a moderate uh, cost of living increase, you know, we, we could go that route. Or do we say, you take your basis points 
and you start paying in to the pool for your departmental staff. So we'll use um, like client service as, a, as an example. Um, if you have a director who's earning three or four times what someone in their role would make at another firm, we don't not want them to be paid well. We still want them to be motivated, but we also want them to have the capacity relief that comes with adding additional staff. And so our managers understood that and they understood that, you know, I can continue to uh, earn what I'm earning and maybe kill myself with the amount of work I have and maybe um, have the client experience suffer. Or I can say, cap me, which I mean, who who would ever want, you know, that kind of scenario, because you never know what's going to happen. Right. Um, or you say, let's look at this as a team, you know, and understand that strategically, we still only have a certain pot of dollars that needs to be allocated. And so you could um, take your, you know, maybe your 30 beeps and cut them to 25, and that would feed into the pool that would pay your support staff that added to our client service team. So when we start, when I started, the firm had two client service professionals. And today, I think we have seven or eight. So that's a great example of a, of, of a team that's grown really significantly and has grown because of the investment of the most senior people in that team. And so they were more invested in who their people were. They understood the economics of bringing in new employees. And so again, you're talking about entrepreneurial mindset at many levels of the organization. Right. You know, it didn't become, oh, the mean old CEO <laughs> took, you know, took money from me and, right. you know, it became, you know, how do I invest in my people? And so right. that became a model that existed for the handful of people who stayed a really long time. If someone leaves the organization, you obviously, you know, have a reset when you rehire. And so you have to factor in the economic, um, you know, just sort of decisions that, that you know are going to come. But um, yeah, if, when you have your most tenured people, there came an investment back into the organization. And that's uh, both at uh, administrative levels as well as advisor right. levels. And so... What led you to do a transaction deal last year in the in the first place? Like what what brought you to the point of deciding you wanted to do that, particularly since it entailed other complications like re, re sure. compensation structure <laughs> a little. That's that's a lot that's, to inflict on yourself. That's one that's one complication, uh, we'll say. So um and and uh you know, we can come back to that. But um, you know, the the comments I had made uh earlier is that we had lost a senior advisor back in two thousand and eight. But in two thousand and six we had developed our very first succession plan. And as you are probably well aware, as, as your listeners are, uh, getting planners to develop a succession plan, uh, though it would seem logical, doesn't really happen with the regularity that it should no. in our industry. Who really wants think, to think about right? like, death and dying? Yes, and, and you're demise, and, right? Yeah, same, like, same thing as estate planning or yeah, life insurance. It's, Nobody it's wants the exact to same that. reason why clients don't want to talk about estate sure. planning. Sure, like, absolutely. Um, well, we have a solution for that too, so I can get to that. But um, so our initial succession plan we developed in 2006. Then we lost a key player in 2008, which ensured um, a reevaluation of the succession plan and a tightening up of making sure that you know we were we were heading in the same direction, and that if somebody left, that it had to have 
a version of a consequence that still allowed the firm to operate, right? We were responsible for, you know, 30 to 50 people, um, you know, when you extend out to uh, spouses and families and, and all of those things. And so we really took a look at succession planning at that time, both from a formal plan that was, you know, con- con- bound by contract, funded by insurance, um, and then included, you know, things like adding the COO role uh, and eventually uh, my transition to uh, president and COO of the firm. All of those were succession planning discussions. Our CEO, unlike the traditional, um, you know, people who don't want to talk about death and demise, demise, understood that if he were gone, it would put the firm and his clients in some version of, of disarray or jeopardy. And he didn't want that. You know, when you're in this business, there is a uh, responsibility that comes with keeping um, your, your clients whole and making sure that they are comfortable. Otherwise, um, they're going to find someone who will. And so, you know, understanding that responsibility to his clients, he felt a really strong uh, push to uh, develop a plan. And we continued to uh, tweak it over the years. And it got to a point when we were um, growing to, at the rate that we were growing, an internal succession transition um, and buyout wouldn't have been financially feasible. That was just, um, we had outgrown our ability to fund the plan uh, solely by insurance. And when you start looking at sort of the small pool of people who could have uh, participated in a succession uh, plan or buyout of him and his interest, uh, it did not make sense for us. And so- Chris, you just you just get to a point of, you know, we're, yeah. we're billions of dollars under management, we're tens yeah. of millions of dollars in revenue, which means, you know, you put a two or three X valuation on that, depending on your, your, your margins of value of the firm. And, and suddenly you're getting to a point and anybody who wants to take even a small piece of this has like a seven figure check and loan. If you right. want to own right. a material 10 or 20% piece, like you could be looking at an eight figure loan and just hard, hard to find successors sure. within the firm that are willing to take loans of that size. Like, is sure. that, yep. that just, that's how the math started coming down for you. It did. And, and our, um, you know, our founder is, um, you know, uh, just as anybody would, when you put that much, uh, investment into a firm, uh, you, you sacrifice a lot initially. And so you, um, are putting a plan like that in place, not only for taking care of your family who, uh, is there, if, if something should happen to you, Um, But he also, he and his wife happen to be very charitably inclined. And so, you know, making important decisions based on their family mission, um, this was something that was important to them because a buyout over a longer period of time uh, might not have achieved all of their goals. And so we started entertaining the conversation. You know, it's very common when you get to a certain size in the industry that you're going to get calls from firms saying, hey, have you considered this? Have you looked at uh, partnering? You know, M&A is really, um, you know, a prominent uh, thing now in the industry. And as uh, baby boomer advisors are starting to get to a a level where they need to look at their succession and and decide Mm -hmm. what they're going to do, 21 for uh, a number of reasons became really uh, active in that space. And so we uh, went through a very, very intense process of researching and vetting and being vetted um, before we landed on a firm that we felt was going to allow us to continue to succeed 
as we had been, um, you know, basically staying in the background, not uh, getting in the way of what had led to our success. It was kind of a learning experience for me, uh, the number of groups who, though um, consolidation and consistency across their uh, partner firms uh, might make sense from an efficiency and economic standpoint, um, if you're taking firms who are a success and changing them, I think you're, you know, I think you're, um, you know, killing the reason that you sought those firms in the first place. So you wanted a firm or or it was appealing when you were talking to prospective buyers to to work with a buyer that was willing to let you mostly keep the the systems and the structure and the way of doing business, I guess, you know, and the compensation structure, amongst other things. Uh who, who weren't going to come in and change you. That was actually a driver. It was. It was a significant driver. That coupled with the, um, you know, interest to maintain some internal uh, ownership and having generations of owners for the firm moving forward. So you hear a lot about uh, when you're going through this process, uh, you know, generation one, two, three, and, and yep. you know, looking at the longevity of the firm in such a way that says, you know, we're not looking to hand this thing over and walk away. Um, there are a lot of questions you have to ask when you're going into something like that. And some people do want to um, hand over the management responsibilities. You know, maybe they do want to, um, you know, become now an employee of something larger. They don't want to have that level of responsibility. We still wanted to maintain a level of control and decision making. Um, so our driver was much different than someone who's saying, hey, I'm a sole practitioner. Maybe I'm getting to be... Um, closer to retirement and, you know, I need to look for a firm right. who's willing to take over uh, versus one who is willing to say, no, we understand what led you to this level. We understand you still want to keep going, you know, with your brand, with your, uh, you know, client service model and, um, and support that and be in the background saying, great, how do we, how do we help you keep doing that? And how do we get other, um, you know, sort of owners uh, within the, uh, the, the smaller entity, um, you know, that, that continue generationally? So who did you ultimately end up picking to do the deal? We went with Focus Financial Partners. Okay. And so I guess you, you sort of implied some of the, the, the drivers or factors of the decision, but uh, just help us understand further. Like, so why focus? Because like, there's so much buying activity. I'm sure you did not lack for, you know, potential suitors who were willing to, to buy and do a deal. So you, 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 you had a lot to choose from. So what, like, why focus? What, what made that deal happen versus all the other people who were looking to write the check? Focus came to us and said, we, uh, we see what's led to your success already, and we don't want to get in your way of that. And that was really appealing to us. Um, we, um, you know, we, we, we did have some interest. There were, were partner firms we looked at and said, you know, all of these firms would, would give us value in different ways. Um, and it's not always financial value. Um, you know, there might have been deals that were, um, you know, higher dollar values, but that was not our driving factor. Our driving factor was our clients know us as Cassidy and company. They know what we offer. We don't want to disrupt that. We still want to be here. We want to be here as long as we possibly can. Um, if we're not looking to retire or get out of the way and let someone else manage this thing, um, you know, are you willing to partner with us and help us keep that consistent? And um, more so than any others, and I will say that there are other firms out there who are interested in 
in that same model, um, how how minimally disruptive can we make this for everyone involved? And at the end of the day, Focus just felt like the right partner for us. I don't think that there are partner firms out there that um, you can go wrong with um, in that you just have to decide what your driving factor is. You know, why do you want to go into uh, a partnership? And for us, it was, we want to keep the core decision makers at the organization together and we um, need a partner who's willing to let us do that. So what happens now going forward that you've done this focus deal? Where does the firm go from here? You have this, you know, restructuring of comp, restructuring of ownership. So like what happens next after all the changes assimilated? As far as uh, clients are concerned, Cassidy and Company is still Cassidy and Company. And so we are still doing business as Cassidy and Company. There's no name change from their perspective. Nothing, nothing is changed as far as how we are running the business and how we are servicing clients. And so um, short of having additional resources that Focus provides us, having some additional compliance and um, things like uh, cybersecurity oversight, you know, all the things that we would hope to have uh, in, the, in, in our business. Um, those are some value adds that they are providing on the back end. But as far as a client is concerned, it's business as normal. We just this week had our quarterly client advisory board meeting. We ask uh, clients of ours to participate for about a year term and we meet on a quarterly basis. And we ask them, you know, how do you perceive it as a client? And, you know, has anything changed in your mind? You know, is there anything on your end that has been impacted? And, and largely the responses were no. Uh, if anything, they were just asking, you know, how is this uh, benefiting, benefiting Cassidy and company? Will there be new technologies? You know, things, things of that nature. But um, as far as they're concerned, it's business as normal. So take us back for a moment, just when you were first deciding to make this split and shift of, of the roles and into a, a CEO versus COO role. I, know, I think you said like you were, you were getting there in 2007, 2008, kind of a- amplified by advisor leaving and financial crisis craziness and everything that was, uh, that was rolling through. So I guess I'm just wondering when, when the COO role gets introduced and you have sort of a, a, a founder, a founder led, founder driven CEO role already, how did the roles get split? Like who, who did what? How do you carve that up? <laughs> so I think that that's going to be a different answer for us based on if you were bringing a COO in from the outside. Okay. Um, you know, at the at the end of the day, you ha- it's a partnership between the CEO and the COO. And so they are the two people at the organization that are largely deciding this. I mean, short of you having a board maybe that, um, you know, is involved in um, defining a COO job description. But the COO is the, uh, what I like to just sort of identify as the jack of all trades concept. I mean, you're charged with ensuing the well-being uh, of, of the entire organization. And so the CEO is really strategy and vision. And the COO ends up having those strategic discussions, but bringing it down to the detail level. And so you are encapsulating parts of your role that are CEO, uh, CTO, CMO, <laughs> uh, you know, chief 
HR person sort of all rolled into one. Um, and I think that if the objective is goal attainment, then the COO is charged with ensuring that all of those things are uh, met. And if not, why not? And, and um, you know, problem mitigation. So the CEO is not getting down to those detail levels. They're letting the COO do that. And in our case, as I mentioned, our CEO was also the chief rainmaker uh, at the at the firm. And so in, in our world, he was backing off of things like interpersonal issues, uh, personnel stuff, process and procedure. And he was focused on his book of, of business and spending time with his clients. And so from an, like an organizational chart perspective, does that literally mean like everybody reports to you and you report to the CEO? And so like he doesn't have direct reports because he's just making rain, setting vision, managing his client base. And you know, you're the one that has to drive as you formulate goal attainment for everything we're trying to do across the organization. So because of the culture that we have at the firm, we like to think of ourselves as much more flat than that sort of um, hierarchy in terms of okay. you know who's reporting to who. Um, as we've grown, naturally, that has kind of um, come to fruition. And so I do oversee all of the functions that have a um, you know sort of tangible client-facing or back office function, whereas the investment uh, committees and the advisors tend to work a little more closely with him, but the truth of the matter is, um, it has a lot more due to a lot more to do with tenure and trust. People who came in after I already had the title knew that they kind of gravitated towards coming to me, uh, whereas people who maybe were there <clears throat> prior to me having that title. It would be kind of mixed, right? It depended on the issue. So it's been a nice but slow transition over time where maybe early on I was managing things like accounting and finance, technology and marketing and HR, whereas a lot of client-facing stuff was still going to him. As the managing exec with our uh, RIA, uh, you know, we were both uh, have a broker-dealer relationship and then also fee business, um, you know, he was the one who at the time was licensed and, um, you know, was used to dealing with a lot of the operational issues that came from our broker-dealer. And so over time, there's been a nice healthy transition where people have come to say, okay, well, now I know Allison as a COO exists. I know that she is uh, competent, capable. She's in all of our conversations. There's just this natural gravitation that comes with, um, for one, a CEO who really knows how to delegate and not hoard that level mm-hmm. of responsibility, right? For some people, that's really hard to let go. Um, and he understands that, as I mentioned, his highest payoff activity is talking to his clients and right. uh, talking to new clients and people who might be able to, um, you know, invest uh, with him. And so he understood that over time, uh, things were just naturally going to uh, sort of, mi- you know, migrate uh, over to my plate, such to the point where we now look at my role and say, okay, well, what, what needs to come off mine, uh, my plate? And how do we add other positions at the firm, whether it's, uh, you know, an a HR director, um, an administrative person or office uh, office manager type um, that can can support the, the level of, uh, you know, work and focus uh, that needs needs to be managed. 
So what are the, you sort of mentioned them as like functional areas that, that are flowing up to you at this point. What parts of the business are you dealing with in, in practice day to day, week to month to month? Sure. So it, it most easily described by some of the department names we have. And so um, we have a client service team, but we also have a onboarding team. We have one team that is specifically focused on just onboarding new business. Uh, in addition to those two, we have a financial planning team. We have an investment and research team. We have a, a tax planning specialist. We have an estate planning team. We have a life coach. We have uh, accounting and operations, uh, marketing, <laughs> we have technology. Uh, we actually have a separate data administrative um, team. We call them our business process team, and they're really focused on data feeds and, um, you know, developing, uh, you, you know, viable use of data, whether it be through our CRM or through internal built, uh, you know, reporting uh, on the health of the organization. And so um, I, you know, can go moment to moment dealing with, hey, this policy in the HR manual says this. And because I've, you know, kind of worn that hat in, in a previous life, I might get that question um, all the way to, hey, we've got this question at the broker dealer level about the use of e-signature. And so, um, you know, it can it can vary. And so back to that sort of jack of all trades, you have to be aware and um, in touch enough with what each of your roles are um, managing to be able to help them work their way through whatever problems they feel need escalation. When you take the departments out of it, it's also uh, anything associated with legal, uh, the partnership, compliance, um, and, and strategy. So we do, we, uh, engage a, um, business coach. And so we use a lot of, uh, coaching tools within the organization just to continue to, uh, grow and succeed and develop goals and ensure that we're, uh, meeting those. And, and so I, uh, I'm in touch with all of those things. So I'm just wondering, like, how do you just keep track of whether all the things they're supposed to be getting done and worked on are getting done and worked on when you've got that many different teams and groups? Like, I'm just sort of looking back, I was scribbling notes as you went of client service team, onboarding team, planning, investments and research, tax and estate, life coach, accounting and ops, marketing, tech, data administrative, legal, compliance, strategy. I mean, there's like a, there's a, couple, a dozen... Right? Yeah, like a dozen plus different groups that just I'm, I'm assuming at the end of the day, like they've all got the things they're supposed to be doing and are accountable for sure. know, some some metrics to, to figure out if it's going well for them. So how uh, like just how in practice do you manage or keep track of all that to try to make sure that everybody's doing the things that they're supposed to be doing? Sure. Um, well, I could say I don't sleep, uh, but you know, you do have to know that's not true. Um, yes, so, at some point, the body. Goes, yeah. <laughs> right, right. Um, and so, you know, it goes, it, you would think that maybe this was pre planned, but we just nicely came back full circle. When you compensate your people the way that we do, there is a level of ownership that they understand is within their position or their function. And so um, when you have a manager who is responsible for all things financial planning, she or he is going to understand that they have a certain level of responsibility for making sure that things are getting accomplished. And they understand that they need to loop me in when that's not happening. Um, so at the leadership team level, we are very in tune with what goals we've set, what goals are being accomplished, where we are with them. Um, but we also 
also have a separate management team who is also, you know, making sure that on a more frequent basis, um, you know, getting into more of the weeds, uh, less strategy, more uh, detail, you know, what's going on, what needs to be done, what are, what technology or process are we vetting? How does that impact others in the team? And when you give your team some autonomy, decision-making and, you know, tell them to own something, most of them step up and do it. Um, Because if they didn't, that wouldn't work in our culture. And so I think that there's a really healthy um, process for communication. The collaboration and teamwork that comes from that pay structure uh, has sort of led to how we are able to stay on top of so much uh, that's constantly going on um, and end our desire to continue to raise the bar. When we've added um, ancillary services, um, I, I mentioned earlier, we have a life coach at the firm. Um, when you are uh, talking to clients who may financially be totally stable for retirement and can retire, but they can't, then that's an opportunity for a discussion. And sometimes as an advisor, you're not equipped to have the level of discussion that needs to be had. And so you bring in somebody like a life coach and that has been transformational um, for not only our firm, but some of our clients. And so- um, So you have a a life coach that works- both with the team internally as well as with clients? Yes, her primary responsibility is working with clients. Um, There is certainly interrelated conversations that happen with the advisors or key staff, um, but we brought her on to talk to clients um, about a a myriad of issues, uh, decisions around retirement, uh, downsizing, um, job and career changes, uh, grief, uh, maybe medical diagnoses that, you know, have an impact on your, on your plans. So we are seeing the benefits now of the longer she's here and the more we put her in front of clients, the more we realize what clients may want to talk to her about. And that is continuing to keep the advisor as a resource for the client, but not an expert in, you know, a conversation on grief, for instance. And so from a client services end, I mean, is that, do you charge for that separately? Is there a fee to work with the life coach? Is it like if your you know, assets are at a certain level, you tier clients and access, like how do you, just how do you manage the capacity? Because I'm, I'm, sure. I'm presuming from the sheer size of the firm, like you've got thousands of clients. So like there's a lot of people who could call on the life coach if you're just going to open this up to everyone. Sure. And so I'll tell you that one of our um, challenges and less lessons learned was that we had two years prior launched an estate planning offering at the firm. And I can go into uh, detail about that. But the lessons learned from that was you don't roll out a service like that all at one time and just say, hey, clients, sign up. Um, Otherwise, you're going to have a list a mile long. So just as you alluded to, you know, if you've got thousands of clients, you can't have them beating down the door of, you know, this uh, singular life coach. So in that way, our advisor acts largely as a gatekeeper. Um, so we've communicated that we have a life coach on staff, but you'd be surprised. It, it maybe goes back to the same concept like the succession planning or the life insurance. You know, people aren't that interested in talking yeah. about certain topics. Yeah. And so someone who hears about a life coach, they might have mixed emotions about their interest level until they understand what working with her might look like. 
And so the gate, the gatekeeper, the advisor ends up referring her. She does not uh, generally have clients calling her um, out of the blue. They go through the advisor. And so in that way, the advisor acts as um, sort of the data resource where they're saying, okay, here's the client situation. Here's why I think you would you know, be good to talk to them. Um, we recently had someone who is um, considering signing on and the husband uh, said he was ready. The wife was unsure uh, and we couldn't kind of get, get under why maybe she was unsure about signing on. Um, and once the life coach spoke to the, the client's wife or the prospect's wife, uh, potential client, um, we were able to understand some things that maybe she wasn't willing to talk about for whatever reasons. So the, the ways in which we've used her have been vast, but they've been controlled. And so that's the key because uh, going back to a service offering we offered a couple years ago, uh, estate planning, that was rolled out in such a way that I think all of us would have uh, potentially done that differently. Um, so, but to your other question, um, we do not charge for that service. That is, um, you know, an ancillary service that you receive as part of your fee. And uh, what we do is tailor the offering. So you're not going to come in and say, hey, great, now I've got a life coach that I can meet with uh, twice a month for the next 10 years, right? right? So that's, that's not the, <laughs> the offering. Right. We've both tightened up kind of what the offering is, but also her focus and make it clear, you know, when she starts working with someone, hey, you know, we're talking about a career change here. You know, I kind of see this as maybe, you know, six to eight sessions, right? Whereas if it's, um, you know, we're downsizing, okay, great. Here's a process for that. Let's talk. We're probably going to only need about four sessions. And so she's able to manage that flow at this point uh, at a year in. If uh, just like any other um, service uh, or, you know, offering at the firm, if it becomes uh, large enough or there's a capacity constraint, we look to uh, invest in that role further. And so then talk to us about this estate planning service you <laughs> me mentioned here as well that you were working on rolling out as expanded services to clients. So I think the estate planning service, while the best thing that we've ever done, is also mm -hmm. the most challenging thing we've ever done. We ended up bringing in a lawyer uh, into the firm, and she... Uh, is a split role where she is a Cassidy employee, but she is also uh, an attorney with her uh, own own law practice. Okay. And we said to clients, hey, uh, as part of your fee, we're going to review your estate plan. And if you need a new plan, here's a base plan offering that we will provide for you. Again, covered under your fee. Um, and so, you know, come meet with our estate planner. Well, and, you, you and then may not. <laughs> if they, if, so if they wanted it, then. And then she the would draft firm, it out of her would, law practice because as a compliance uh, stipulation, you cannot sort of, as an advisory right. practice, be uh uh, drafting plan documents. Right. And so um, if somebody said to you, hey, Michael, I know you don't want to talk about life insurance, but if I'm willing to do X, Y, Z and you get you know, it free or you get a benefit or you get, you know, you're much less uh, hesitant 
maybe about talking about mm -hmm. your demise because suddenly uh, you're not necessarily uh, paying for the service, right? So uh, when you have uh, X number of clients, uh, <laughs> and as you alluded, into the uh, thousands, uh, suddenly understanding that they can get a review and potential uh, draft, um, that was a overwhelmingly popular service offering. Interesting. Um, so I guess the have, flip side, like worth noting, if you take like, you know, if you take the pain of paying friction out and you make it really easy for clients, like it turns out they actually do engage with some estate planning. They do. And so um, we have routinely over the last three years uh, managed a queue uh, in excess of a couple hundred people. Um, and also in that time went from one attorney to now uh, seven employees within the de department. So you've got a mix of three to four attorneys and, uh, you know, a couple administrative people as well. And so, so that became something that we said, hey, had we looked at that differently, maybe we wouldn't have rolled that out to all the clients at the same time. <laughs> you know, maybe we would have used a gatekeeper uh you know, uh, recommending who needs it um, instead of saying, hey, you know, raise the banner, flash the the lights and, and uh, set off fireworks. We've got this great new offering. And then everybody got in line. And so that became the biggest challenge for us was how do you manage a client's expectation while also giving them a service uh, that is, um, you know, now complimentary, but they believe to be something that they deserve because they've been a member of the firm. So uh, that was a but, lesson learned on how to communicate your uh, po most popular service offerings. And so, and so how do you think now about like how to communicate and manage those expectations? I think much like we've done with both our um, life coach, and then we also brought on a CPA exclusively for tax planning. We don't do any returns or prep um, at, at the firm, but from a tax planning standpoint, we use the same model, which which is the advisor is the referral source. And so instead of, um, you know, sending out, you know, large announcements, bold print, you know, hey, look at this great new hire. Um, we still, you know, make sure that people are aware that we have these people on staff, um, but the resource comes through the advisor. So how do you think about this? Just, I guess, just from a cost perspective of the business, like I, I get ancillary services and, and trying to do a little bit more for clients. But you know, when you, when you add up like an internal CPA and seven people in the state planning department, including multiple lawyers, like to put it mildly, like these are not inexpensive roles. So suddenly like you've got hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not a million dollars of expenses for add-on services. Like, are you, it's just like, how do you think about I mean, is that this is, you know, we're very profitable. This is a reinvestment back into the clients. Is, is this a necessary cost of doing business? Is this a, like eventually we're going to have to charge for this because this is getting really expensive? Like, this, how do you think about that level of so you hit cost on almost, for add on service? You, you hit on almost all of our thought processes that yeah. happened over a period of time. And so we've gone uh, every route that you mentioned. So there are, um, you know, going back to the comments that I made, if we need to invest back in the firm, and whether that's uh, others, um, you know, investing back in, for instance, you know, top advisors or owners of the firm, right? They understand that, you know, bringing on certain levels of employees and service offerings will result in uh, attracting additional clients, uh, clients referring others. You know, if you're at 
you know, playing golf and say, oh, well, I met with my financial advisor with my estate planner. Well, why'd you do that? Oh, because they are all under one roof. What? <laughs> right? Like, is that an attractive Ooh. feature? Um, and so some of it's just investing back in the business, uh, cost of doing business. If you want to stay competitive, um, then you, you know, you need to be adding things that are different than the person or the advisor firm down the street. Um, and so uh, you also have to put um, a large investment into your marketing arm, because if you are not doing that, then none of this um, really comes to fruition on the front end where you get to a level where you can invest in these kinds of things. Um, and, and again, compensating people with the same philosophy, which is, you know, hey, this is your revenue share. If the firm, you know, um, has, a, has a tougher time, then everybody's pay goes down. If not, we all make good money. Um, and so how are we um, how are we paying for all of these things? But then to your point, um, there are now ancillary and additional estate planning service offerings um, that are being charged for. And so we went from, hey, everybody, you know, all in because we had no idea the interest level that we were going to receive. Um, it was overwhelming. I mean, it's outstanding. We, we love it. Yeah. Um, I'd like nice, nice problems to have. Yes. <laughs> right, right. It's much better than like, we spent all this time trying to come up with this new service and we yes, rolled it out and it like <laughs> three out of every thousand clients care. Like right. that doesn't feel right. good. So right. no. Um, and so, yes, it, it's, you know, um, when you have uh, catastrophic success, I, I guess you could say without um, sort of uh, sounding uh, pompous or, or, or what have you. But, um, you know, we've put in a lot of years and, and um, everybody doing what they needed to do to invest back in the firm and understanding that all of these things are what make us attractive to, um, you know, investors in, in the area where we uh, are and it's very competitive market. Um, you know, you have to differentiate yourself from the firm down the street. And so, um, yeah, just all of these things are uh, up to us, a cost of doing business and continuing to raise the bar. What could we do uh, better and different? But I think you said like you, you are looking at starting, starting to at least have a charge for some clients for this going forward. For the estate planning arm specifically, okay. I think I mentioned that there was a base plan. Um, right. When you open the door to estate planning, that is a world in and of itself. And so if you're going from, hey, I, need, I just need a trust to, well, I also need a special needs trust and I need somebody right. to help administer and I need this and that. Like there, So there's a very defined offering. And then there is the sort of above and beyond. And so if you start charging for the above and beyond, you can start adding then some capacity to provide those levels of services. And so, um, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's been a lesson learned for us about how do you define the offering uh, before you do it. We often like to say that uh, we're building the plane as we're flying it. And so um, that's a great example uh, of something that I think though it was so successful and continues to be, it's also put us back on our heels and said, okay, how do we do that differently next time? So share with us a little uh, more about just your path into this, into this role. I think you'd said, like, so it's 2008, there's this realization that the firm needs to start kind of separating out a CEO and a COO role so the, the, the founder can focus on clients and rainmaking that he was so good at and, and you could drive more of the operations. I think you said at that point, like you, you went back to school to get an MBA so that you could take the role. So talk to us more about just your path in, I guess, getting the role initially and then how, how it's evolved for you over the past 
10 plus years. Sure. So, um, I, you know, in the in the very sweet intro that you gave at the beginning, you mentioned that I had been the assistant to our, the firm's president at the time. When you work with um, somebody who's leading the organization in a role like that, where you are exposed to everything that he's got going on or she's got going on, um, it, it's it's up to you to, to make something of that or look at your role as uh, just, you know, there to provide uh, coffee, right? And right. so, um, you know, I, I took every learning opportunity that I could to understand our business. I came out of college with a communications degree. I had n- nothing even remotely related to the finance industry in my background at all. And so it became a um, task in understanding what our firm did because I was invested in the firm and I wanted to stay and grow with the firm. And so um, when you start out with a firm that's really small, I think I mentioned that we were about 15 employees. Um, you have a small space, you sit near other people. I mean, for years I sat next to our client service uh, staff. And so I would just absorb like a sponge anything that they had going on in their world because I wanted to learn and understand. And so as we got bigger, he trusted me to be a part of everything from the hirings and the firings and the payroll and the accounting. And, you know, I was also the office manager in in addition to being his assistant. I mean, when you're a small firm, you wear lots of hats. And so um, I did everything from, you know, bring him coffee uh, to paying the payroll to billing the clients, right? So that's just sort of what you do. And so I Got ex- I, I got exposure to all the things that were sort of happening at the organization, um, but also just, uh, you know, it was my personality. I would challenge right. him or I would ask for things or, you know, um, just made my presence known. <laughs> and I think that the relationship that we had is what led to um, the chief operating officer role being um, identified as a need for the firm, but also being identified as a role for me specifically. Um, he and I had such a uh, good, strong level of communication where he knew I was not going to hold my tongue. Um, right. When you're a chief operating officer, you need to be the yin to their yang. You need to, um, you know, support their strengths and, uh, you know, or be be the opposite in terms of strengths and weaknesses, right? Play off of them. But you also can't be a yes person. You're not there just to tell them that every idea they've ever had is so great. Right. You know, you're there to right. challenge some of the things that they've done and support the vision and move that along. And um, I just think as we grew, there was a natural uh, progression of people understanding the level of he ha- trust he had in me. And that's that, that translated to them having that trust. And so um, the MBA was really just sort of the capstone of that. It was um, an executive level MBA, which meant that they were educating us not to do all of the functions that you would do in a business, but that you would oversee and manage those functions, right? So I'm not working on a server, but I know enough to manage the IT (laughs) director when he's having a challenge or we need to talk about switching a platform or, um, you know, name your your, uh, item in, in, right? right? 
right? Or um, data or marketing or um, eventually the client-facing roles, client service, financial planning, research and investment management. A lot of the problems that you come across um, tend to be very similar in terms of, okay, well, conceptually, you know, what, what makes sense? I mean, there's always details that you have to get under your belt and learn. Um, but if you, you know, sort of have a take charge mentality and say, at the end of the day, is this good for the firm? Is this good for the clients? Um, you know, those are the things that are going to drive you um, to, to, to be in a role like that. And so I was blessed that someone saw those traits in me um, and, and didn't expect me to be somebody who was uh, sort of a wallflower in the background. Uh, once the, the role ca- came under my belt, I understood that I couldn't stop learning there. And so what I did was uh, formed a local group of, um, at the time, female COOs. And so regardless of industry, I wanted to surround myself with other people who were going through um, similar challenges um, or, you know, be able to vet uh, ideas with them regardless of industry. Because when you're focused on things like technology, HR, accounting, administration, a lot of those are similar across multiple industries. Um, And so for me, it's just continuing to learn, going to uh, conferences that feature other CFPs. COOs um, and, and continuing to not sort of rest uh, on where we are. So talk to us more about just how you, it's like how you learn to do this role, right? As you know, like you, the, you've been in this firm since essentially straight out of college for now like 20 plus years, uh, but like didn't have a finance background, didn't have a management background. Now, you know, are, are uh, in this leadership position with a firm with, you know, tens of millions of dollars of revenue and 70 plus team members. So like, how do you learn to do this COO role or where, where have you gone to try to figure out how to do this role well? You know, I think that the the piece about learning from an education standpoint just comes from the, what the traditional means would be. And so, um, you know, grad school was one of those avenues, industry, uh, education and conferences and things of that nature. Another asking questions really is, is the core um, sort of opportunity to learn <laughs> and, and then do. And so, um, you know, somebody once uh, said, I read this piece that where they said, you know, great CEO or great COO really needs to have have a balance of um, curiosity and excellent communication. And I think that that's really true because if you are not interested in all facets of the business, then you don't, you really shouldn't be in a COO role. Um, you are responsible for so many different elements of the organization. And so for me, I think that that's what led to my ability to uh, to do that. But I think the number one thing that really... Um, influenced my path is the fact that at a fir- at the firm level, we have used an executive level business coach for 20 plus years. And so to have another resource that is working with you at that level and saying, you know, here, here's how your leadership skills can be developed or better developed. How, you know, um, for me, I'm a focus driven, task oriented person. And so sometimes you need someone to say, yeah, but, you know, sometimes you also need to be the interpersonal expert, right? And you need to be working with people and and where they are and understanding them and what drives them. And so that was really critical for me was figuring out what drove our people and then meeting them at that space. Um, there's a, there's an obvious sense of maturity that happens over a 20 years, or like, at least I would like to say it's obvious, maybe not for everyone. 
Mm-hmm. Um, am I perfect? No, uh, not at all. And as you as you stated, I don't have the finance industry that some others do have. Um, but what I think I bring to the table is a willingness to learn and understand enough to make competent decisions. Um, at this point, you know, as a COO, you work very closely with the other uh, partners at the firm. Um, right. So, you know, if there was ever a decision that I didn't feel a hundred percent certain of, um, there are other people to go to. I, I would right. never, um, you know, make make certain level decisions without them. But there are many, many other decisions that I feel very confident in making, uh, either because we've been through uh, similar circumstances or just lessons learned in the past. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, I can't speak enough about the experience I had as as someone who was a working professional going to an MBA program. I think that's a very different experience than waiting maybe two years after your college graduation and then turning around and going right back to school. I think that your perspective is vastly different. Right. And, I, and I often think that if I even went now <laughs> to that same exact program, I would take different things away now than I did, um, you know, 10 or 11 years ago. So what surprised you the most about this path of building and scaling the firm? I think when you, when you started and came into the role, you were essentially like 20 something team members. Now you're 70 something. So you have the firm three X, which is a lot of people in complexity. So what, what surprised you the most about building and scaling a firm? You know, um, when you're when you're in it and you're just kind of looking strategically at what your needs are i think you're just operating in the moment and so to say that any one thing surprised me i don't think i would pinpoint um, one particular thing. I, I think the rate of growth, um, once we lost that advisor in 08, 09, um, to where we are today, I think that is the most surprising. Um, we've been um, willing to put in the hard work and the dollars to make that happen. Um, but even, even with that in mind, growth in this business is not a given. Um, you have to work extremely hard. And our marketing effort, which um, we've not spoken about has worked very, very well for us. And we feel really blessed about that. I think that the thing that, um, you know, outside of the growth that surprises me is just something that none of us could have foreseen, which is the impacts of what COVID have done to um, all working environments. And the fact that we have now gone from a firm who said, oh, I don't know, you want to work at home, like maybe a day a week, like, I don't know, that sounds like too much to now, oh, you're hybrid, and you want to maybe only come in one day a week? Sure, we can manage that, right? I think that that is a complete, you know, uh, 180 (laughs) to where I feel like we were pre-COVID. And uh, what that situation did to businesses, for better or worse, um, because I do know that there are both sides to that. In our world, it changed us to be a much more flexible, adaptable environment. And I don't think if you asked me three years ago, if I would have seen that same shift possible uh, for our organization and to still last year have brought in more money than we've ever brought in before ever. And so it, it was really a testament to our people and the dedication that they have, that they would uh, be able to thrive in that kind of environment, which I know has been um, absolutely so difficult uh, for, for so many of us. And so we're just, where did all the growth come from? Like what, what is driving all of this growth for you at the end of the day? 
Um, so for many years, we um, we started down a path of uh, educational seminars to potential investors. And I know that there are a lot of people out there who do that. Um, the thing that we did was continue to f uh, hone that craft and that message and that presentation again and again and again. And we invested in it and we invested in various coaches and we would have people come and we would have them rate us and say, you know, well, this works and that doesn't work and don't say this. And, um, you know, really took that as a serious intentional growth engine. Um, and so for us, it wasn't about here's why we're amazing and why you should work with us. It was let us educate you about some key important things. And if you walk away from this dinner tonight and have only a cute, you know, a few takeaways, then that's great. Um, but if you feel like that your portfolio is worth a second look, um, that's also complimentary. You know, of course, that's a, uh, mostly mostly a given today, not not totally, but um, you know, people were attracted to our message. And um, I credit the CEO who did the presentations for years, but who also understood that investing in people who would help him get better in doing that. He never rested on, oh, I'm some kind of, you know, public speaking expert. And, you know, I've got all the answers. Uh, he would record himself. He would watch it. He would get coaches to weigh in. Uh, we as staff would give him feedback. We were always motivated to make it better. Um, and, and that included where we held them and what the, um, you know, venue was like. And, and so we changed it again and again and again to improve it. Um, and then eventually it got to a point where we said, you know, the only way to scale this thing is to let other people give the presentation. And so we kind of started over and said, okay, now instead of one speaker, we're going to get, you know, five, six or seven of you uh, advisors to give it. And they did the same thing. They went through and honed the messaging. You know, somebody at um, giving a message that's 65 years old and, you know, been in the industry forever and has a lot of uh, experience to, to speak to is not going to give the same uh, message right. that a 25 year old who has right. been in the industry very short period of time is going to give. So while your messaging can be similar, it's not going to be the same. And so you have have to continue to hone that craft, um, practice that message, record yourself, get people to give you the hard feedback. I mean, um, I sat through test runs with people, you know, I gave, I, you know, almost like a grading sheet and told them, you know, do this, don't, don't do that, say this. Um, it worked really well when you gave this graphic, you know, those kinds of things. And we were invested in making that happen. Um, and finally, what that did was lead to a base of clients who coupled with the service offerings and and the attention to service from our employees that led to a healthy contingent of referrals. And so now when you couple this sort of honed uh, process of seminars that's uh, educating the public and exposing them to us as a firm, um, coupled with people who are already working with us and very happy, um, we now have a healthy um, you know, stream uh, of business that's coming from both both of those sides. Um, never mind uh, uh, people who maybe uh, came in as an investor and wanted to date you before they married you. And, and so maybe they right. didn't have all assets with you. And then uh, over time and trust uh, realized that uh, they, they wanted to bring more assets in. And, and how often do you run these seminars? 
It can vary, and and certainly the last couple of years with COVID uh, impacted well, that. We've even went to like pre pre COVID environment before the yep. world got yep. funky. Uh, we did do some uh, virtual seminars over the course of uh, COVID and some outdoor events, but previous to that, we were doing anywhere between fifty to sixty a year. Wow. Um, yeah, which uh, you know, so like every on average every quarter. Yes, and they usually were you know chunked. We would send like uh, one invitation for three nights, you know, out of the course of a week or two, because um, you. you you know, we would, and uh, like I said, we're, it's a concerted effort. We would look to the, you know, what restaurants were generating, how many leads, what time of year, um, you know, all, all sorts of different data factors, um, you know, which, which uh, sort of mailing list uh, criteria. I mean, it was, it was a very dedicated effort to ensuring that that was, um, you know, exactly what we wanted out of it. So what was the low point for your personal journey on this, on this path? Hmm. <laughs> um, let's see. Low point. You know, I think that um, I've been lucky to continue to feel like I've moved um, upward in the organization um, and, and not just because of title changes or, um, you know, tenure, um, just, you know, understanding more about the organization. Um, I think it's, it's a hard uh, one for me to answer what the low point was. Um, I do think that looking at a partnership last year was probably uh, the hardest we've ever worked and so from from the um, from the standpoint of being able to balance uh, my personal and professional life last year was uh, more of a challenge for me than probably any other year that I had ever had and so um, the time and attention that that effort took um, was definitely difficult from a um, a balance standpoint, but also just um, we were working all hours, day and night, to make sure that that decision was the right decision. And so you're researching and you're vetting, and then when you decide to go through the process, you're being um, vetted and go going through due diligence, and then you're making sure the clients are comfortable with it, and um, and all before uh, you know a, a certain time marker, right? We wanted to make sure that that happened in in two thousand twenty twenty one. And so um, I think that that was really hard for me because I really had to make sure that I stood behind the decision that we were um, going through. Uh, you know, there had always been this message that said, you know, we're never going to sell the firm and we're going to stay independent and we're, you know, going to kind of walk down a path um, that was pretty consistent. And we had to get comfortable with the change that this was going to potentially uh, bring to the organization. And like I said, I feel very comfortable that we landed with a partner that let us still be who we are. So in the end, it was a very worthwhile effort. And I don't think we uh, have ever learned more uh, about the industry and what it takes um, to, to consider your sort of next path um, when you get to a size like ours. Um, but but personally, it, it tested a lot of my, um, you know, belief that I was going to be okay. Um, did, you know, were we going to be acquired by someone? Did they need me anymore? 
did, did, you know, my role uh, still hold true um, as a, as a need in the organization. And so when you've grown up someplace and you uh, feel like there's a version of that, that is your home, it's very hard to start asking some of those questions. So I, th- I think that that probably was an example of a, of a, of, a, of the greatest challenge. Again, I don't know if I would define it low point, but I think that it was, it was one of the greatest challenges I've ever had um, in my career and certainly the hardest we've ever worked. So you know, having been in this COO role for, for 10 plus years, you know, what, what do you know about it now that you wish you could go back and tell you 10 years ago when you were just, just taking on that hat, finishing your MBA program? Oh gosh, so much. Uh, One is just, you know, what growth we've had in the expansion. So whether that just be headcount or service offerings, I don't think that I really could have foreseen that because there was such a long time before we hit 50 employees. And then I feel like we exploded um, just beyond that. It was uh, sort of uh, in the mirror, you know, uh, in in the background. And so um, rear view mirror is what I wanted to say. And so... um, I think I don't even know if I could have prepared her for what that would have looked like. Um, At the same time, I probably would have told her, have the confidence that you do know what you're doing. You know, you've asked Mm. me, um, how did I know what I was doing? And I, and I hate to make it sound trivial. Like there's a, there's a version of what I feel is common sense or gut reaction to things. Right. So sometimes you just hear something and you say, well, that's not right. Or that makes total sense and I feel really comfortable with that. And sometimes you have to trust that that is just how you know. There's nothing, um, you know, nothing more than your body telling you that 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 is the right thing and it's a gut reaction. And sometimes that's okay. But, um, you know, when you graduate through roles at the same firm um, and especially go from somebody who is considered a sort of junior person, you know, an assistant level person, which, by the way, I have such a healthy respect for our executive level admins. Uh, I think that uh, you you really have to be on top of your game to have a role like that. But in the, in, in the progression, I kept thinking, you know, will others respect this growth? Um, and did they see that I was... Um, you know, fit for this, right? It didn't just happen because, you know, I was uh, somebody who got along really well with the CEO, right? Did I have what it took um, or have what it takes to um, lead, lead, you know, people who are looking at me as somebody who is in the tough conversations and making difficult decisions and was I equipped for that? Um, And so it's different if you've had the role and then you go to another firm and you still have the role, right? Because there's a sense of you've done it before. Um, But when you're growing into it, uh, there can be a level of doubt, I would say, um, for for ensuring that you really are the right person um, for the role. And And I think that I've really been blessed that I've been so well received in all of my uh, sort of positional changes at the at the organization, including when the president title uh, was added to to my um, title. There were so many women in the organization who said, "I really was so excited about that announcement." Um, they felt like they were represented. There were there were staff people who felt like they were represented at the um, sort of highest levels of the organization, and that that meant a lot to me. So in that vein, I guess I'm I'm curious is you know I'm sure you're you're very cognizant as well like our our industry has uh, 
you know, a, a dearth of women a- across the board in, in advisor roles and leadership roles. So I, I guess I'm wondering, like, what, what advice would you give to to young women that are thinking about coming into the industry and trying to decide if this is the right right industry, right career for them, given sort of the, the challenging gender dynamics that exist today? So I would say 100% do it um, because of so many reasons. One is that depending on the role you take within the organization, right? So there's a, a shortage of female advisors. We know that that is a problem within in the industry. Um, and yet we've seen women who went down a path of maybe becoming an advisor and at the last minute, for whatever reason, said, maybe I don't want to do that. And they have gone on to have other successful careers within the industry. Being an advisor is not the only option. Um, you know, we have a great uh, example of that in our director of financial planning, went through the CFP program, was an advisor for a period of time. She felt like she was much more suited for being in the financial planning space uh, than the advisory space. And so, you know, I think that what women are um, hesitant about often comes down to two things. Um, and, and I don't like to uh, br- brush with a broad stroke, but I do think that um, one is there's this concern around the sort of uh, financial or um, let's just say there's there, there's too much math uh, in the or in the industry. I've heard that um, from people. It's like, I don't know because, you know, I don't feel confident in math. Um, there's so much more to the role than understanding numbers. Right. And so it's not as simplistic as, well, I wasn't good in math, so I can't go into finance. I think that's too, too broad stroke to say I shouldn't look at the industry for that reason. I think the other thing is that um, it's about exposure and understanding. As a younger person, my parents didn't work as, with a financial advisor. So it, that was not in my world of understanding that that job even really existed in such a way that I would be interested in learning more about it. Um, it just it just didn't didn't strike my fancy for whatever reason, um, and I think that exposure is everything. Um, we often speak to students at um, you know various alma maters of people throughout the organization, and we often tell them, you know, go talk to your parents' CPA, go talk to your parents' you know attorney, go talk to your right because if you don't know people who are in those spaces, you don't really know the extent to which the jobs might exist. And so if you don't have the exposure, then you don't learn enough about the industry to even know what paths you right. can take. And we have so many <clears throat> women in our firm, but also women in manager leadership roles um, that we are sort of um, defying some of the industry norms in that women are not well represented. Um, we have struggled in acquiring and retaining female advisors. And that is something that we take pretty seriously. Um, But we excel in having women who are in powerful leadership positions who, uh, you know, really understand what goes on in the industry and um, excel in their positions. So as we wrap up, this is a a podcast around success. One of the themes always comes up is just the the word success means very different things to different people. And so you've had this wonderfully successful career path with a a very large and successful advisory firm. And so the business and career have gone well. But I'm wondering, how, how do you define success for yourself at this point? Success for me personally, outside of success for the firm, 
is really just continuing to gain um, the respect of, of peers within the industry. You know, there's so much uh, talent that I have experienced across my years with the firm and in this um, position. And, uh, you know, I had mentioned to you that the challenge for me was feeling a level of confidence and having sort of grown into the role internally. And so um, for me, when I have outside parties who come to me to ask for advice or come to me to seek out, you know, well, how did we set up XYZ at the firm? Um, Because, you know, maybe they saw me speak at a conference or maybe they heard us, um, you know, in some other form or fashion. I mean, that for me is, is a, is a definition of success. If I can be somebody who helps others in the industry be uh, a success in their own right. I mean, there's certainly enough work work to go around. There are enough clients for all of us. Um, You know, this industry is uh, worldwide, much less, um, you know, certainly something something that is not, um, you know, regionally protected, right? I spoke with a group out of uh, Nevada last week who had seen um, a couple of us speak at a conference and they really had a question about succession planning. And they, you know, just emailed into the firm and they asked to speak and, you know, I took some time and, and talked to them because so many people have given back to us that um, if someone wants to seek out uh, what we have to give, then I want to I want to be able to provide that. And so if people continue to seek out those things from us, then I absolutely will consider that a success. Well, very cool. I, I suspect you're going to have a number of people who are reaching out based on, on this episode as well. So for those who do want to follow up with Allison, uh, this is episode 282. So if you go to kitsis.com slash 282, we'll have some, some links out to connect with Allison on, on LinkedIn or to, to reach out through the company if you want to explore further. Uh, but thank you so much, Allison, just for, for joining us and, and sharing the, the story and the journey on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks for having me. It was great. Absolutely. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.